HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Mike Kalameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio. That was me sneezing. I am talking to you today from the coast of Lake Champlain back in the Adirondacks for a beautiful spring day. And I'm joined on the phone today by Rory Beyer, who is in Rolling Stone, Minnesota. Yep. Wait a minute. Minnesota? Is MN Minnesota or Montana? Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to go straight to the to the juice of the matter since we don't have very long together. Um, okay. Can you talk about the way that you have structured your dairy farm um, startup in partnership with your parents and how you uh, arrange the enterprises that constitute your your dairy operation? Okay, you're, you're going to have to. I can't quite hear you as good as I could hear the the other guy there, but go ahead again. Um, I guess maybe describe your operation. Okay, our now operation. Yep, our operation is uh, a hundred and thirty cow dairy, and we've divided it into different. Um, that's what we started with. When we were young, I mean, we started with 300 acres, and that's what my parents originally bought. And then it expanded up to 600 acres as we began to start renting land. So now we run the 600 acres together with the 300 acres, but we separated it into two different uh, segments and and made two different... uh, uh, enterprises out of it. One was an LLC partnership, which we we rented the land and put the dairy into, so that it would be <clears throat> a uh, more of a business structured 
um, how do I want to say, more of a business structured system. And our point in doing that is to be able to separate out one enterprise versus the other, to be able to analyze more efficiently whether or not those sectors are making money and how to um, change it if they're not. And, and uh, how's it going so far? Well, so far so good. Um, <laughs> it's it's complicated, you know, like everything is. You know, how's it going? How's it going so far in terms of that analysis? Oh, that analysis. It works excellent. It uh, it allows us to be able to uh, really pull the numbers out, really crunch the numbers, and figure out. What are we spending in any one uh, given area at any time? And, uh, like, there were things that, I mean, as I graduated from college in in 2000, that when I came home, I had touched on a lot of this. And uh, so it intrigued me the most, and I wanted to figure out how I could put it into use on the farm and it literally took me about eight nine years to be able to implement what I wanted to do because our business was so multifaceted I mean we have you know all of these different uh, crop enterprises and each one of those requires a separate like almost like a separate bookkeeping set to where you can really sit down and and know what all of your inputs are costing and so that you can analyze it for a a profit because then you know and you and I both know in this world that we're in now it's I mean for a small farm our size now I say small just because everywhere around us I'm dealing with guys that are eight, ten, twelve thousand acres, and so I mean, for us to be six hundred acres, you know, we have to be able to compete with those people and on a worldwide scale. Does that answer kind of what you're, or did I veer off to the little farm? No, that's maybe? great. So, so you say that it took eight years of of focused work to transition to really knowing your business well enough to be able to shift your practices, that's um, that's a shift that a lot of families are having to make, um, moving from one from one kind of set of guiding guiding principles or from one person's intuition to another person, meaning from one generation to the next. Um what do you felt feel like helped you make that transition? What were the principles that you feel like you drew from in uh, in orienting yourself? Well, the one thing that stuck with me when I was in college was I, I, I began to look at, we had this game we played, and they called it the farm game. And every week we would go back to class and... and um, 
in class they would say, okay, well, if you had this percentage of increase due to having a good year for that, because every year we would we would play the game like we went through a year, and it was chance, like a set of cards that you chose, black or red, that would decide whether or not you were up or down relative to the year you're having, very similar to what happens in a real system. You know, you're, there's no way to predict what you're going to have for a crop year or so on and so forth in dairy and whatnot. But what you do in that situation is you analyze it to find where your diminishing marginal return is. And at that rate, then, that's where you decide to produce you know, for every additional unit you're putting in, yeah, you're going to get return, but if you go past the the limit as to where you sit, I mean, it's that core concept of knowing when you've gone too far with what you're putting in for inputs that decides whether or not you're going to be profitable. And especially in the dairy setup or the dairy the dairy world, as you want to call it today. I mean, for me coming out of school, you know, they were trying to teach me just looking at the dairy alone at this point. I mean, they were trying to teach me, okay, you want to put in X amount of protein to get out X amount of milk, but what they don't tell you is that the main driver is energy. So... Why are we looking at protein when we should be looking at energy? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that you end up asking yourself and finding out, you know, once you get past um, the land-grant universities' uh, um, thought process. Well, you know, unfortunately, that critique has been launched at the land-grant universities for a long time, and yet seems like the high-input, high-output systems are still the the focus of that training. So so I guess the question I have is, how did you you approach your dad, um, and how did you kind of justify... Um, you're saying you like to reduce debt and you wanted to have really authentic enterprise budgets for every part of the farm and figure out your replacement costs and how much your your replacements cost on the farm to produce versus how much you could buy replacement um, heifers from off the farm. Like, just describe a little bit maybe how you approached that with your dad. Well, I mean, I... I sat down and I just did the work, you know, I mean, my dad has always been more hands-on, you know, and and as more of that generation is, you know, you just you continue to do the same thing over and over, and if you don't get, you know, <laughs> to me that's insane, you know, you, you can't expect a different result if you don't change your mind or at least look at a different option. And so to convince my dad to do, or my mom and dad to do different things, my mom is more, far more open-minded than my dad is when it comes to these kinds of things. But but you have to show 
that the math works. You have to prove that what you're doing makes sense. You know, I mean, and that's the biggest thing. It's it's not too hard to change someone's mind when you say, hey, look at this. We pulled these numbers out, and we're not making any money feeding these animals. You know, it's costing us $7 or $6 a hundred weight to produce these heifers. Okay, well, when you sit down and you, and you look at the total farm debt per hundred weight, and you're producing at you're producing at thirty dollars a hundred weight for organic milk sales, but when you get your check in the mail, how come there's never enough money to cover it? Well, because you've got X amount of debt you have to service first, plus what the cows eat per hundred weight, plus what the heifers are eating per hundred weight. And what most people don't understand is that that you never look at what the heifers are costing you. You just accept the fact that, hey, that's what we need to continue. You know, and 80 to 90% of what you get off of your farm when it comes to production out of the cows and out of the next generation that follows behind is going to come from your management practices and how you actually do with your animals. And it's only 10% that comes from genetics. So to get attached with the genetics is kind of a a false hope, believing that that 10% is going to drive your production any higher than managing that 90% better. And so that's that's kind of the, the way that I approached it and explained it, and it made sense. And so, and well, that, and we also just simply had a horrible year last year where we had to decide, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to, are we going to sell the main cows, the ones that are producing the income, or are we going to sell the heifers, the ones that are just eating the feed? And, you know, we had to make a decision and the decision was to keep the cows that were making the money. So that that kind of sorted itself out a little bit too, but it it was a helping factor. Well, I just think about how many people are sitting in a business um, that they're really locked into a, a business model and really invested in all the equipment and infrastructure and, um, you know, the patterns and, and the and the skills to run that business and how infrequently it comes about that they would radically shift that business. In my in my case, I'm thinking about um, shifting it further towards organic or further towards sustainable agriculture. Uh, and so it feels like your particular, um, you know, intergenerational numbers-based and, like, rational conversations is something that you could imagine happening um, also around farm farm practices. Uh-huh. Very useful things to have to happen more more places around the country. So anyway, we don't have to go deeper in that if you don't want to. But tell me what you're noticing if you're noticing um, all around you there on the landscape 
your your neighboring or in the same county or you know across the state. Are you seeing a changing of the guards in terms of dairy and organic dairy, and are you seeing a similar dynamic playing out uh, intergenerationally? Am I see? I mean, as far as the struggle from within the own our own farm to make these things happen, is that kind of what you're looking for? Yeah, whether people are being able to to, to make big changes or. I don't know if they are or they aren't. I guess I'm asking you what you're seeing. No, and that's just it. They're not. But, you know, and I work with with a group um, that's called Farm Business Management, and what they are is it's Southeastern Minnesota Farm Business Management, and what it is is it's a guy that comes around and he will help you put these partial budgets together if you want them to, and... That's really kind of who got me started on the thought process of it. But then knowing and understanding it are two different things. And when you look from generation to generation, it is that hardness. It is, you know, I mean, it's it's that difficulty that of of convincing someone to do something that's different, you know, and... I was talking to him recently, and he said to me, he said, um, there's an awful lot of people that know what you guys did with your animals, and, and they're asking a lot of questions why we would sell our young stock, because at one time in the early 2000s, we had one of the top herds in the U.S., and we were selling genetics worldwide out of our animals, so why would we first of all, make a switch so drastic to go to organic? Those are the questions they're asking. And the other questions are, why would we then make another decision so drastic to sell the young stock when we put so much time and effort into raising them earlier on? And and it comes right down to this. I mean, if you can't, you got to break that that thought process to be able, you know, break through that thought process to be able to really crunch the numbers. Because if you don't, I mean, we're in such a world where, and I don't have to tell you this, you're very aware of it, and so are your listeners, that that it's so difficult to, to get... Um, well, I'm trying to well, the word I'm trying to get to here. I'm kind of at a loss for. Um, so difficult to get right down to the nitty gritty, so to speak, and make that decision and choose to to cut when it doesn't seem to be the pop popular thing to do or the most logical at the time. But when you see what's underneath, you know, and that that's ultimately what this guy was telling me is that everyone else is not looking me as looking at me as crazy anymore. They're looking at me as, well, hey, maybe we should be implementing what he's doing. How has it changed their bottom line? You know, and that's ultimately the the way to keep your business healthy. 
Well, I mean, I think I think another part of it is uh, it's hard to look. It's hard to look. It's hard to feel like you're a victim of a system, or it's not that it's hard. It's it's difficult, and it's not pleasant to look to look at yourself in the mirror and think, "Oh, well, I'm part. I'm a victim of this system, and there's no way I can really see over the um, over the top of it." And so I feel like a lot of people don't want to look at themselves in that way. They don't want to see themselves as a victim. And then one option, obviously, is to just work harder and ignore the the structural issues that are facing your farm business and, for that matter, facing the farm businesses across the country. Right. Um, I don't know. I just watched that Farmland movie, and I felt like the whole thing was just like... Um, truck porn of people, you know, focusing on, people focusing on their trucks and the machines and, like, how big and powerful their trucks and their machines were because they, it, that felt like almost like being a winner instead of focusing on, you know, what a big challenge it is now as ever, but worse now than ever to, to really, to make, a, you know, to make a farm business work. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. It is very difficult, and it's very complicated. And even and I can't even begin to imagine someone who hasn't had all the advantages that I've had. You know, I mean, I look at all these young farmers and all these these people that are just starting out on their own, and and it, it I can't even begin to imagine how it would be if I didn't already previously have the infrastructure behind me and, and my parents supporting me and you know I mean for me to start from nothing and and travel through with this this thought process it would be almost unattainable and Boy, I mean, to tell someone else or to show someone else how to get to this point, you know, there's only one person that I know of that has started out from scratch with a grazing model and was a guy that was actually a farmer that um, never was, his parents never were farmers, he just chose to do it on his own and and he started out by renting and and buying his cows and then just grazing to get into the the setup and that has made him the most money. He's the only guy I know that made money in two thousand nine. You know, when the market really crashed. But Well oh. So um, so you're not seeing uh, as many smooth transitions as you'd like. Um are you seeing are you seeing some transitions into organic? Are you seeing more defections from organic? What are you um, What are you noticing? I'm seeing a lot more people looking at it not as taboo anymore. I'm seeing a lot more people saying, okay, you know, accepting the fact that organic is probably going to be here to stay and more than likely eventually it's going to be more of the mainstream. And I'm just looking at this from the perspective of the microbiology underneath the soil. 
and and recently how that's you know the, how the 1990s, late 1990s studies are coming more to light, and you know I mean most people are starting to transition in the organic area around by us just because they see what it does to the soil. They see what it does to the animals on the farms. They see that us as farmers, we don't have the vet bills. We don't have the problems with our cows. We don't have health issues of our own. You know, and that's something that I think is the big thing. You know, when you face a health issue that is directly related to you, that's when the light most of the time comes on for these people that are directly around us. But, which is unfortunate, but they do see, you know, they look at us, they look at my neighbors too who have been doing the organic and. It is really surprising how many people that are in mega CAFO dairies around us are really starting to question whether or not they should be looking at organic a lot harder. And the practices that we use, it's really really kind of exciting in a way. Because a lot of the people have simply stopped using BT corn and simply stopped using Roundup Ready corn and gone back to conventional because they're seeing it in their cows. And so that's been a good thing as well, I think. Well, I'm just thinking about, you know, a concrete a concrete suggestion to make as there's this transition going on, generational transition, if we could have stronger incentives for management transitions in the way that in other countries, I'm thinking about Norway and I'm thinking about Denmark, where they have very strong incentives that help people manage transition to their um, acres to organic or even before organic, just, you know, increasing riparian habitat and reducing um, reducing tillage and um, reducing impact from uh, concentrated manure spills, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the, the, you could imagine almost like a program de- designed around helping, helping young people who are entering into management make changes to their operations, kind of in the way that EQIP and a lot of the NRCS programs are already working. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can see that making a lot of sense, you know. I mean, and and I think that's one thing, you know, I mean, I was discussing, and I can't remember who it was with uh, one night, I was discussing the possibility, and and you mentioned incentives, and how you would make incentives um, help with these, these, uh, these changes over to these systems, and... Uh, the one thing that was interesting to me is there's that dollar that comes off on the checkoff. And everyone that I've talked to in the organic 
areas around me, um, they simply don't want that dollar taken out. But, you know, and it, it doesn't, it gets misused as it is normally. But, I mean, if we look at that extra dollar that's coming out anyway and we say, okay, if they build a organic checkoff and they use it for actually promoting organic agriculture and organic food and the organic system, then we've got at least that much more help coming to the organic system. And to me, that would make more sense, you know, just trying to get those dollars back from the government that that they've they've taken and not been so so light to return, so to speak. Um, well, I think the ultimate point is the framework of looking at this issue only from a consumer side and saying, well, if people want more milk or if people want more beef organically, then they'll buy it and that'll send the market signals. And I feel like... Uh, the trend I'm seeing, and it sounds like you're somewhat agreeing at least, is that from a, on a producer end, it's a pretty big challenge for that to happen on the ground. And any, any support that we can create that's structural and in terms of investment and shifts in system or shifting from the, um, one kind of system to another and giving people the training in cover cropping and giving people training in alternative uh, husbandry and managing health without drugs and all the kinds of things that are a part of switching systems. That would be essentially producer support. So you're okay. So instead of consumer support. Instead of consumer support. Yeah, you know, I mean, why? Why, if the producers are already getting basically taxed for it and it's not going to benefit the organic producer, would would the organic guy want to pay for something that's going to advertise against what he's doing? That is... That's something to me, and maybe I'm not understanding your question quite well, right. I mean, you're, so I guess the milk checkoff dollar is going to support propaganda being being made that's pro-conventional. Is that true? That's what I'm understanding. That's what I'm understanding from you. Okay. Yeah, I know that that's true in terms of strawberries that the the checkoff that the strawberry growers pay, even the organic strawberry growers, is being used to lobby for preserving the chemical growers' right to spray methyl iodide and methyl bromide. But I guess that money is also funneling into, uh, like, for instance, this new movie that just came out that I so detested. See, on, yeah, on, the, milk, on the milk side... You know, that's not happening. You know, I mean, we're looking at at our dollar go directly to the conventional system, and it does not support 
anything whatsoever on the or, on the organic and for me that's that's a big problem but and like you said you know i mean it's it shouldn't be that that we should be maybe so concerned about that but but we probably shouldn't be asking the government to make a checkoff for it if it doesn't exist at this point. But what I'm saying is why should we, if they're taking the dollar from us, why shouldn't we ask them to redirect that to something that's going to support that, that we are, are paying for? To me, is confusing. And, and, uh, most you know they're horribly unsuccessful programs and and um i mean i'm sure that that uh it could be done another way more efficiently and that's kind of well, what i'm saying i think uh i think uh we're coming to the end of our time so i want to be mindful of that and and I guess the point that the kind of takeaway for me, and I would love to, you know, to, to take this up with you in person sometime, um, is how can we do a better job of interpreting what's going on on the ground, so that when the policy, when the policy representatives who are thinking about the next farm bill are looking at this generational transfer, that the framework. Um, the framework of that isn't only around panic. It's it's also about well, there's a big opportunity here. There's a major inflection point. You've got a new set of managers coming onto the land, having to make their livings and having to make decisions. And what if we could really support those people moving towards organic practices? So that's highly encouraging to me as a framework for for dialogue. You're, okay, I'm sorry. I'm losing you a little bit here. It must be a connection. <laughs> it's okay. We're, we're we're running out of time anyway. I'm I'm really thankful for you coming on, yep. and um, sharing a little bit of your story. And I I hope we can continue the conversation. Yep. Well, thank you very all much. All right, everybody. Thank you all for joining as well. This has been another episode too short, too short, but very interesting um, around organic dairy. And I hope to hear from you next week. Oh, if you'd like to hear the podcast from our recent Ireland Symposium, they're up. Agrariantrust.org slash symposium. You can download the audio and watch videos of Wes Jackson and Eric Jimenez and um, Fjord Vartanov. And that's all for today. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 